very good morning and welcome to my very special guest this morning, the um, Secretary uh, Secretary General of the African National Con- Congress, Mr. Cyril Ramaphosa. Welcome, nice to see you. Nice to meet you in the flesh, first time. Nice well, to meet you. Thank you. Good to be here, John. I see uh, that uh, we, we always boast that this radio station really has its finger on the pulse of what is happening in the world and especially what is happening in the world of politics in South Africa. And we couldn't have our finger more on the pulse with regard to Cyril Ramaphosa because you have just heard in the news, as I read in the, in the Sowetan, on the front page of the Sowetan, a death plot, right-wing threat to Ramaphosa. Now, uh, as you walked in, our news anchor was reading the story, and I'm reading it right now. How do you feel about it? Well, it's uh, one of those things that leaves one numb. It causes a great deal of concern that there could be a bunch of people out there who want to eliminate one. So it it does concern me. But at the same time, I think uh, this is one of those things one expects in politics, particularly when we're going through a very difficult and traumatic transition period. I read, and as as you spoke there, I I was reading the second paragraph of the story, the death plot, right-wing threat to Ramaphosa, the ANC has confirmed that Afrikaner Force Front co-leader General Constant Fulyun volunteered information linking the plot with covert military operations. What is your relationship like, in fact, with Constant Fulyun? I have met him a few times in negotiations, and once we met just uh, for private informal chat. He comes across as a respectable gentleman, who is concerned about uh, the aspirations of the Africana people, a concern that we also have. We are also deeply concerned about their aspirations, and to this end we've been trying through negotiations to address their very deep concerns. And I believe that we have already gone a long, long way to address those concerns and those aspirations. So from the ANC side, we, we are making determined efforts to make sure that everyone, Afrikaners and all our people, become part of the process. Are you very much a family man? Does the family mean everything to Cyril Ramaphosa? What comes first, politics or family? Well, naturally, family comes first. But at the same time, there is the struggle that we've been waging over the years. There is the work that one has to do. And that has to be balanced with family life. And you have to try and mix the two and try and spend time on both. Both do come under stress as time moves on because uh, you're continuously busy with meetings and so forth. But at the same time, you've got to reserve time to spend with family. I I really got to understand that you, you, like many black South Africans, come from very humble beginnings. Your your father was a policeman in Soweto. Indeed. And in fact, I, would I be correct, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that your first brush with the SAP happened when you were just a young little boy. You, you, were, you were kicked off your bicycle by a policeman. Do you recall that? Yes. In the 1961 emergency, I was walking to school, and there were soldiers all around in Western Native Township. And as I tried to find my way through to school, I was kicked uh, off my bicycle. 
and uh, by a policeman, yet your father himself was a policeman. How did that, did that, did that cause a bit of a, a break of relationship between yourself and your father? I mean, if a policeman, and your father represented the police force, could do that to you, then hell, how did you look at your father and what did you say? No, it never did. My father was uh, one of the very best policemen I knew. He was a policeman who really cared about people, community-oriented, until his dying days. He, he held a very, very warm and good place in my heart. And uh, he qualifies as the best person I've ever known. Were there always dreams and aspirations of, of being and arriving to where you've got to right now, of being the great politician, the chances are the next president of this country? As a little boy, did you have dreams of all of this? Heaven forbid the presidency side. Uh, as a little boy, yes, one tends to be very ambitious. You want to do well at school. You want to be the very best in class and so forth. So those ambitions were there, but... In the course of time, one was catapulted into the struggle because one saw the suffering that our people were going through. And having gone through school and through university, although it was through hardship, one felt that uh, one had been put in a rather privileged position to be able to be of service to the people as a whole. I remember when I was at university, one of the things that I really wanted to do after qualifying was to go and work on the mines and to spend time experiencing and living through what I regarded as the deepest suffering black people went through by working on the mine. I was not able to do that because I was detained and my university career was interrupted severely. But one has done all this because one has been concerned about the status quo in, the, in our country. And gladly, that is now coming to an end. We're now getting into a new phase where together we have to build and make sure that there's a better life for all our people. When I qualified, when I finished my law degree, I immediately went into the union movement. Why did you go into the union movement? Because you, am I correct in saying that you truly established NUM, the, uh, the National Union of, of Mine Workers? Yes, I was one of those who were asked to form the National Union of Mine Workers. And my interest in the trade union movement really derived from the suffering that I saw workers going through and felt that one could make a meaningful and an effective contribution towards making sure that we move forward to create better conditions for workers and empower workers to be confident and to be able to interact with their employers in a much more meaningful way. And I believe in the Mine Workers Union we were able to achieve that because mine workers today walk tall, they hold their heads high. The terrible conditions of the past are now coming to an end and all this has happened during the course of the past 12 years and mm -hmm. it's been wonderful serving the miners and working with them all this time. Was there no other? Was there no ulterior motive to that? Was there? Was there not that power struggle, that once I've got the miners behind me, mm -hmm. who knows what I can do, through the union to the mines? No, you see, I'm I'm like a reluctant uh, 
participant in the political field, my, my, my real first love is helping the workers get somewhere. And there was never really ulterior motives, and in fact, I would have preferred to remain with the miners rather than be where I am today, but circumstances did not allow that. I had to get into the position to continue serving and hopefully serving a much broader constituency mm. than just the miners. As you read this this morning, we've got to go to commercial break. Before we do, I just want to touch on this death plot again, right-wing threat to Cyril Ramaphosa. It truly is not the best feeling in the world, is it? No, it isn't. Uh, I was exposed to, to gunfire on two occasions and once at the World Trade Center when I thought that the whole place would just be bulldozed. So it's really three times. And one never really gets experienced with these things. You're always a novice when you're facing gunfire. Hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm not a soldier, and I'm not a hero, and uh, okay. one gets very scared. Are you a, are you, you a religious man? I am, I am a religious person. You believe in God? I do believe in God. I go to the Lutheran Church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, no, the reason I ask that, because I had Ronnie Cattles on my show who doesn't believe in God. He doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> That's Ronnie. <laughs> my special guest this morning is Cyril Ramaphosa. Secretary General of the ANC. Today sees the start of the the five-day test between South Africa and Australia, and I, I attended the one-day game, and sitting behind me was your dear friend, Rolf Mayer. Yes. And I was wondering, if it's good enough for Rolf, is it good enough for Cyril? Are you a cricket buff? Are you a cricket fan? I'm learning to be a cricket fan. I'm beginning to enjoy the game, mm. And uh, I would like to have a lot of time to attend quite a few matches so that I can be as expertly at it like yourself and many other people. Are you a soccer fan? I love soccer. And what about boxing? Because I know if I, if I had to be talking to Nelson Mandela about boxing, he's, his smile would just light up. Are you a boxing fan? I'm a boxing fan. I enjoy watching international bouts. Uh, that is what really grabs me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also enjoy, you know, athletics and other games. Okay. Yeah. And, and in the world of soccer, do you? Somebody told me you support Swallows. Yes, I do. You a Swallows supporter? I'm a Swallows supporter. They haven't been doing very well, but uh, I always say, once a Swallows, always a Swallows. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't mean to say what the return of a one Swallow makes a good football season. <laughs> <laughs> what about motor? Motor racing apparently is truly one of your loves. Formula One knockout. Oh, yes, sir. It's one of my lifelong passions. I often say that if I wasn't in politics, I'd probably be either fishing trout or racing cars. Yeah. I would have uh, been able to outpace Nigel Mansell and Aiton Sen and all of them. I think I'm a pretty good driver. Are you, are, are you a fast driver behind the wheel? I mean, do you enjoy putting your foot down and, and feeling the difference? I do enjoy driving a fast car, but obviously with the speed limits that we have, one has to be very careful. But I love strong, fast cars. You love fast cars and, 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 and good curry. I've got to talk to you about your loves. You see, it's important for me to understand what Cyril Ramaphosa loves in life. Fast cars... Uh, you love trout fishing? Yes, sir, I do. Yes, and and somebody said to me, talk to the man about curry. And as I mentioned curry, 
you did a little funny thing with your nose and, 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 and as if to say, why did you have to ask me that question? Yes. No, yeah. I, I reckon that I'm the best curry cook I know. And I know somebody who would take you to task on that, especially if you do it in a poiki. And you know that is? That will be my guest, I do believe, on Tuesday, and that is the uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, Puk Buerta, who would say, you tell Sul Ramaphosa from me, I will cook him out any bloody day. Well, he can, <laughs> he can challenge me. He can really challenge me. He can cook the best Portuguese, and I'll cook the best curry, and we can have a competition. Why curry? Was it just something that uh, I learned that your mum used to cook? Or? No, I learned to cook curry in prison where, where I was detained. Uh, we were allowed uh, to wander around in the prison yard and uh, because they didn't want to provide good food for us and we said, well, provide us with the raw materials and they did and we started cooking curry but it was still in solitary confinement. You were allowed like one hour to get out of your cell and then to, you know, to go in, into the kitchen, the prison kitchen, and that's where I learned. You spent about, uh, what was it, it wasn't a very lengthy period, it was about, what, nine or ten months in prison? Well, the, it was the first time round. Yeah, it was not a long period, it was 11 months. 11 uh, months. Yes, and then the second time around... It was why, did, why did you go to prison the first time? I still don't know. They haven't given me an explanation why they sent me to prison. They didn't even charge me. Why did you go the second time around? They didn't tell me up to date here. I'm waiting for someone to tell me that this is the reason why we detained you. You never went to Robben Island. I never went to Robben Island. When did you meet Mr. Mandela for the very first time? I met Mr. Mandela in 1989 for the very first time. And it was... Can you recall that? Could you tell me something about that meeting? Oh, yeah. And what it meant to you? It, it, it was an experience. It's an experience that I'll never forget because... One always had these visions about this legendary man who had suffered so much, but who was still able to hold his head high. And we were ushered into his uh, sitting room, and there he came in from the other side, looking slim, looking very statesmanlike, and stretching out his hand. And my heart just melted, because in him I saw the man I had had in my vision all the time, the hero that I'd always had from the time when I was young. Mm. I was deeply moved, and I was also very much strengthened. My resolve was even more strengthened because I said, here he is, been in prison for 27 years or so. Mm. But he still maintains his confidence and his love for the country, and he's still committed as ever to the struggle. You won't find a person who cares more about all our people than in Mr. Mandela. He cares very deeply, and he cares for all our people. I mean, he even singles out uh, groups, the ethnic groups in our country, that we've got, obviously, to make sure that we address their concerns in this way and that way, and also not forgetting, obviously, the majority of our people who are black. But he does, in the depth of his heart, he does care, and very, very much so. I, I recall, please correct me if I'm wrong. I recall the day of his release. Were, were you not, as I see it now, were you not right at his side, in fact, holding the microphone in front of him? Yes, I was. You were there? I, yeah, I was there. We, we went with his wife, Winnie Mandela, and a few others to go and fetch him from prison. Mm. 
and it, it was really a historic day. And we went to the city center of Cape Town. There was just chaos and pandemonium. People were just all over, just trying to push forward to touch his hand, the hem of his jacket and all that. And I had to act like a bodyguard because yeah. uh, if we hadn't done that, he could have been crushed. And one thing that was prominent in our minds was what happens if he's just crushed to death by mm. all these enthusiastic supporters. So in the end, I stood there and held a microphone. It was not by design, it was just by pure accident. Your relationship with Winnie Mandela was very strong, especially during the emergency situation <coughs> in this country and uh, during many times of, of, of black people uh, going through the, the process of liberation. However, when Winnie Mandela formed that football team, that's when Cyril Ramaphosa said, hang on a second, this I do not like. Did that upset the relationship? And what is the relationship between Cyril Ramaphosa and Winnie Mandela like today? During that period, we, we formed a crisis committee after her house was bent down. I was one of those with Frank Chikani, Bayes Nadi and others, and we were playing a supportive role to Winnie Mandela at that time, and we were continuously interacting with Nelson Mandela in prison, telling him about our consultations with her and so forth. And she was very cooperative throughout. We were able to sit for hours and hours discussing the crisis around herself and the family and how best we could address the problems that she was going through. We went through that period, and thereafter, of course, the trial and everything happened. But today, she's on our National Executive Committee again. She's the president of the Women's League, and we relate fairly well. Uh, people may have thought that, you know, the relationship had collapsed and there was nothing more to be salvaged. We have a fairly good relationship at a formal level as well as at an informal level. Is your relationship with her as good as it is with Wolf Meyer? Yes, it is a good working relationship. We not friends. We uh, good at relating to each other when it comes to the work that we have to do. We interact a lot over the telephone, uh, personally and informally, and it, it works because it has been a relationship which has helped to solve quite a number of problems, and we're both happy with that. At a personal level, we, we don't even socialize together. Is he a good negotiator? He's a very good negotiator. Who do you call... Who would you... Who would you classify as being extremely good negotiators in this country right now, besides no. Rolf Meyer? Nelson Mandela. Who else? He's, uh, he's formidable in negotiations. And there are quite a number of people. We have people within our own ranks. We've got uh, Tabo Mbeki, Vali Musa, Joe Slovo, Mac Maharaj. They are all astute negotiators. What about government? On the government side, they've got people like Ruth Mayer and Declack himself. He's, he's good negotiator? Good. Yeah, he's a, he's a pretty good negotiator. Is Pug Porter a good negotiator? Is he, is he wise and worldly? Pug Porter is amazingly actually quite a good negotiator because he, he, he has this personality that enables, you know, negotiations to move in the direction of solving problems. 
he seeks to solve problems and i saw it demonstrated during the Wallfish Bay dispute. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He was committed. Once he crossed a particular threshold, he knew that the problem had to be solved, and he cooperated. I was very glad that uh, when I asked you the question, do you ever listen to this radio station? You said, indeed, I do. I do. Uh, your programs are good. Your morning programs, the news programs are very, very good. And they, they, they have an added element to them because you get you know, voice of the people who are actors in whatever field coming on show, unlike many other radios, and uh, you've got good uh, radio personalities as well, like yourself. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> if the Freedom Alliance and the IFP are not at the polls, what are the consequences? Well, the consequences could be rather serious and grave, but at the same time, an overwhelming majority of our people would like us to move to the elections. And it is for this reason that we as the ANC, and I guess on government side too, are not even thinking or contemplating postponing the elections as some of them are now suggesting. If the election date is ever postponed, this country is going to blow up. The people of this country will not have the patience and the tolerance to see a postponement to the election date. So if they are not at the polls, the train must move on. And obviously we will do everything we can to make them part of the process. So what you're saying to me in terms of that as an analogy is that the train's got to move on, but there is every chance that that train could be derailed. Would that put it the way it is? I don't believe the train will be derailed. I think we all will do everything we can to make sure that it does not move off the rails. And... It is now poised to move on without being derailed, and we committed to making sure that it moves on to its final destination, which is democracy.